In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. Well, yeah, of course we will. In this life, you will have trouble. But you know that, don't you? You know that. You know trouble. You know pain. You know sorrow. Even these little kids who just left the room just now, they know it. You know it in the world within you, and you know it in the world around you. Hopefully, you take notice. This thing is not wanting to obey me. There you go. And maybe you don't need me to tell you this. Maybe you actually don't want me to tell you this. You don't want me to talk about this. Right? Perhaps that's not really what you want to hear today. Maybe you were hoping for a break from it all, hoping not to be reminded, hoping to not think about whatever is going on in your own life or in the life of somebody dear to you, or just shut away all the stuff from the news. The thing, though, is we, we can't avoid it, can we? And also, these are not my words, or at least not my words only. They are the words of Jesus, quoted by St. John in his gospel. In the world, you will have trouble. And why does it matter that these are the words of Jesus? Well, because these are the words of Jesus speaking to those who followed him. Those who followed him because they believed Jesus to come from God and would eventually believe him to be God himself. He said it to those who believed him, Jesus, to be the Messiah, the anointed one of God who would redeem and would save them. And Jesus is saying, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And I guess it would be just fair to ask, if you have overcome the world, Jesus, why will we have trouble? That that is what Jesus is telling them. That they will have trouble. And he's telling them at a pivotal point of their faith. Because Jesus is telling his disciples this right before he is arrested and crucified taken from them. Up to now, the disciples had been following Jesus around the land. 
first Galilee, then Judea, coming up to Jerusalem. And they had their fair amount of trouble. It's not like they had it easy. But they also witnessed miracles. They witnessed healings. They witnessed liberation of people oppressed. They witnessed powerful speeches of Jesus against the corrupt religious authorities. But now Jesus would be taken from them. He would be killed on a cross. He would be set in a grave. And he would, it's true, (laughs) raise from the dead and, and once again sit and eat fish and bread with them at the beach and once again speak and be and breathe life in the middle of them. But then he would sort of disappear from their sight in a cloud, what we often call his ascension for maybe lack of a better language. And he's not there anymore in the same way, is it? And the world, the world would still have troubles. And the disciples would find themselves asking, how do we follow Christ in the middle of all of this? In the middle of trouble? And what difference does it make? What should our faith look like as we actually live in a world and through life with trouble, with pain, sorrow, death, with disease, with loss, with hunger, with poverty, with loneliness, with anguish. Should I continue the list? That challenge isn't exclusive to the disciples. In fact, they were already from before Jesus immersed in a faith tradition that struggled constantly with that same question. How do we live in faith in a world marked by trouble? How can faith birth hope in a world like this? I believe also that the question is familiar and that it is relevant to us here today as well. Because we know, don't we, that in this world, we will have trouble. And yet we're gathered here as a community of faith. So how do we navigate this as people of faith? As I search our scriptures for something that may give guidance, a path perhaps, I found something. And it is thankfully not what we might call a solution. And I say thankfully because what we call solutions, they tend to be short-lived and they tend to be short-sighted. Because the thing is, life and evil and goodness, they seem to be way too complex and way too profound for our solutions. I always fall short. But this is something else. It's a poem. It's a song. 
and it is a song to be sung together. And I want to read it for you. And I want you to listen. This is from Psalm 126. We're not going to have it on the screen. We're going to do as we have often done throughout the summer as we have been looking into the Psalms and try to engage with the oral tradition from which the Psalm comes. To, to listen, to let it sink in, to let the words ring in our ears and in us. And this is how the psalmist sings. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues, tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has great, done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So sings the psalmist. The theology, the, the poetry, and, and the singing of this song, they are an expression, and I believe also an invitation, of a life of faith that is lived in the reality of a world where there is trouble. A world very much like our own. And I would like to share with you about some of the marks that I see in this song. And I want to speak of this life of faith. And the first mark I want to speak of is memory. Memory. The memory of faith, the memory of people. And it is what we might call a collective memory of redemption. A cultivated memory of redemption, of grace. To understand that, we need to, in, in this context, we need to be reminded that this was a song sung by a people. A song sung by a people. And their expression of life and their expression of community, it was sung together. And it comes to us from the Jewish scriptures and what, is, what was and still is part of the Jewish faith tradition. And the song starts with spelling the memory of God's redemption in history. Spelling it out, giving it name when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And biblical scholars and commentators, they have different interpretations of what this phrase might mean, uh, also because of the specifics of how this is written in, in Hebraic. What does the psalmist mean by the restoration of the fortunes of Zion? Is that even the proper translation? One interpretation that has a lot of backing to it, and which I myself find most likely is that the psalmist is referring to the return of the Judaites from exile. So 
if you don't know the story, in a nutshell, yeah, Israel was taken over by the Syrians. Lots of the population, and especially the leaders, the artisans, everybody who had a bigger social impact was taken to exile. They were in exile for decades. And at some point, they come back to the land of Israel, to the land of Jerusalem. So the return of the exiles. And the returns of the exiles is also the possibility of cultivating their life of faith in their own land again, right? That's one interpretation. But there is something to be said, I think, about the very fact that there is a disagreement between the scholars. But they're not really sure what you're talking about because it is actually meaningful that this could refer to other events. They could be talking about the deliverance from Egypt. Even when you speak of Zion, there's a line, right, and how they understood your story. They could be talking about other deliverances in the story of Israel. And that is meaningful because ancient Israel had a living, expressed, collective memory of God's acts of redemption in the past. They would speak it to each other out loud in worship, in prayer, around their tables. They constantly named and, named and sung and celebrated, and that way lived in the story of a God who had acted in history to redeem and therefore was able to act in history to redeem. So this singing of their memory is, was not just merely a sterile reminiscence. It was an act of transporting the now, right? Or transporting to the now, to the now and here, what they by faith knew and spoke and sung to be true of the then, right? That which they by faith knew to be true of the then, in the act of singing they transport it and they speak of it into the now. So the psalmist first sings of like a dreamlike sense of joy, almost as if the joy slips between his fingers, but he will still speak of it. A dreamlike sense of joy emerging from God's redemption in the world. And he declares that even the nations around them looked at it all. And in the ancient world, this is an expression for a mighty act. When even the nations around with their own God stop and pay attention to what your God is doing, something big has happened. And they said, the Lord, the nation said, the Lord has done great things for them. And the psalmist starts there, but then that memory of what happened then becomes an expression of faith into the now. And the psalmist repeats, and now not as a quote from the past and from them, but as a declaration of faith for the now from us. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. This collective memory of faith, it is not a dead artifact of reminiscence. It is a source of hope and even of joy in the now. And those also are marks that speak of the life of faith. Hope 
and joy. And I will speak of joy soon, but first I must speak of hope. Because the psalm allows the memory to become supplication, (laughs) to become a cry, to become a request. Act again, God. The psalmist sings and sings in expectation. Act again. As then, also now. And the realities in which, into which the psalm speaks, hope, they are difficult realities. They are painful. And they are all too real and known to us. The image in the psalm, in the poetic landscape of the psalm, the image is the image of drought and the image of hunger. Lack of rain. The land is dry. It doesn't bear fruit. And therefore, everything crumbles, right? It is an archetype for everything that threatens to make life unlivable. that which breaks down the very basic needs of the human being. It's a difficult reality. But the psalm and the psalmist and the community of faith, and that is the work of faith and hope, they cast into the now and into the future that collective memory of God's goodness and the affirmation of God's redeeming action in history. And they say God is a God who saves. God will save and God can save now. And the hope that the words of the psalm shape for us is a living hope. It is not merely an expectation of a future. It is an anticipation. That's not quite the same thing, right? It's not just an expectation, it is an anticipation. It's an act that brings it closer. It is an expression in the now of what we by faith declare has been and will be even more the reality that God redeems. And here, this image is, for me, the strongest and most powerful image in this psalm. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy. And the images of the sower walking on dry land. And he carries the seeds he has. The reason you carry seeds over land is to sow it. And you throw it on the ground. And you weep because the ground is dry. But you keep on throwing. And as I heard this, I thought, that is an anticipation of hope. Whatever seeds there are, (laughs) 
the seeds of the spoken faith and the seeds of the things we hold in our hands. We don't withhold them, right? We sow them. And if we weep, we ally our tears to wet the dry land. Those who carry seeds as they weep through dry land. And that is the people singing. A song is a seed of faith. The food they share with the hungry is a seed of faith. The shelter they share with the homeless is a seed of faith. The presence they share with the lonely is a seed of faith. And then when harvest comes, when something grows between the cracks, or when the rain in the distant mountains makes the rivers flow into the dry land, And that seed comes forth with life at some time unexpected. What do we do with that abundance? What do they do with that abundance? Collect the sheaves and walk back through the dry land. We bring it back. And this image was in my head, right? Because walking back means also walking back to the places of hunger and to the places of despair and to the places of dry land. And that's where the seed needs to be. That's where the food needs to be. That's where the sustenance needs to be. That's where the songs of hope need to be sung. And then we have the disciples, right? And Jesus telling them, you will have trouble. You won't have all the answers. The land will look dry. You will have trouble. These things you experience with me, some of them will seem like a memory dreamlike memory. How will you nurture and cherish and carry that memory? And what difference will it make on the ground you walk? And the disciples walk into a time which is, in terms of our Christian theology, the time we're in, in which we speak of a God who came and we speak of a God who comes, right? And in that sense, it's similar, right? It's similar to the, tradition of, to the Jewish tradition of faith. But then there's something to this Jesus, right? This Jesus that speaks to them, which is, he's the Jesus who hurts, right? He's the Jesus who sits on the, on the ground and shares the, the bread to the 5,000. He is the Jesus who bleeds. 
He is Jesus who knows the feel of the dry, parched land against the sole of his own feet. Who knows the pangs of hunger in his own stomach. Who touches the open wounds of the leper. How do we go about it, is my question. Because we have struggled with this as a tradition of faith, right? We don't, we don't know the answer. Sometimes we pretend we do. We pretend we know when it's gonna happen, how it's gonna happen. But then there's a set, a different question here, a different set, which is what do you do as you walk through it? And here the psalm and the words of Christ give us an invitation. For I am with you to the ends of the ages. How are we as a community of faith? The people who walk on the dry land carrying seeds. How are our songs seeds of hope? How are our actions seeds of hope? How is, how do we do it? And one of the paradoxical and wonderful things about this psalm is that it speaks of joy. A hope that births joy in a world with trouble. Isn't that good news? A faith that brings up hope and joy, that anticipate that which we want to and work for and long for, and brings it to the now through the songs we sing and through the way we go about it. I've spoken before here in the series on the Psalms about something I have liked to call prophetic joy. And what I mean by that is that it is a joy that is sensible to the pain of the world. Because we don't want a separated joy. We don't want a joy that is about us celebrating what we have while we close our eyes to those who don't, right? We don't want the joy of a faith that says, eh, we're fine, and that's good enough. We want a prophetic joy, a joy that dares to speak of hope in the world, a joy that moves us to share, a joy that moves us to uh, sing songs of hope in defiance of the evidence, a joy that dares to embrace and dance on parched land with broken limbs. The people who walk the dry land, weeping if we might, singing when we can, but carrying the seed. And I think if the church can do that, if we can do that, What does that look like? 
we can sing the memories of the past into the now and sing our hope of the future into the now as we go. What kind of people will we be? And I believe we will be followers of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The one who shared with the broken, touched the lepers, laughed with the disciples, and who told us, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards each and every one of you into whatever your troubles look like and whatever your joys are. Then it in all, may he be your peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other and serve the world and serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.